How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. I am honored to introduce our distinguished guest for today's program. Lori Bloom has been the solo bass clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for over 40 years and is widely regarded as the best orchestral bass clarinetist of his generation. I had the distinct privilege of studying clarinet and bass clarinet with him for four years at Northwestern University, and I have learned and continue to learn so much from him as my career has progressed. Many of his former students occupy bass clarinet chairs in major symphony orchestras throughout the country, and he has left a lasting impression on each and every one of us. Lori, welcome to the program. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start off with a little icebreaker question for you, and this might be a little tough because I know you have a lot to think about considering your experience, but since you have spent over 40 years in the Chicago Symphony, I wanted to ask you, if you were to put together one final program as the last program of your career, who would the conductor be? Who would the soloist be? And what pieces would you program? And I'm kind of looking for like an overture concerto symphony setup. But if you feel creatively compelled in another way, it can look like anything that you would like. And and I get to have my orchestra. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, your orchestra. That makes yes. a difference. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we're, we're going for ideal scenario here. So whatever your utopia would look like. Uh, boy, I'd be torn on the overture. I'd, I'd, one, of the, one of the preludes from Valkyrie with Varenbaum would be pretty fantastic. Or Muti loves to do a lot of Italian stuff. Surprise, yeah. surprise. They're, one of the, like La Gazzaladra or... La Semiramide overture would be fantastic. The concerto we already did, it would be pretty hard to top. Schulte was conducting and Barenboim was playing and we did uh, our talk first piano concerto. Oh, wow. Uh, um, that, was, that was pretty spectacular. Was that when Schulte was still a music director? It was, it was as they were planning to the transition. Okay. So, That's pretty cool. And I, boy, the the two things that you always want to play again with the Chicago Symphony are are Strauss or Stravinsky. So I would I would say either Heldenleben or Rite of Spring. Yeah, two good ones. Uh, definitely some bass clarinet parts there. Yeah, and we'll stick to Schulte for both of those. Okay, I kind of figured you were. <laughs> I kind of figured you were going to go for Schulte. Just that would that was my guess because I know that he certainly had a big impression on you. Um, it's my understanding he was the person who hired you into your Correct. current position. Yeah, that's really cool. So I just wanted to know if you could take a moment to just give us an overview of your life and career. How did you end up getting into music? Where and who did you study with? And where have you been other than Chicago in terms of the orchestras that you played with and sort of your career trajectory? Well, my, my family moved a few times. Uh, my dad was a chemical engineer and we moved for, for work. I, I had started, I was born in Buffalo, New York, and I started piano lessons there at four. But my mother was a soprano. Uh, a lot of recital work and operas and in Buffalo she sang with the Buffalo Philharmonic a lot and so she started me on piano very early then when I was seven we moved to Bethesda, Maryland just outside of D.C. and in fourth grade they had the, the usual possibility to try band instruments and I went in and 
I, I think, as I remember, I wanted to play the flute. And they said, oh, no, your amateur is just perfect for clarinet. Now, yeah, it's funny. Uh, You're not the first person who's told me a story like that. So <laughs> they seemed, the early band directors seem to know exactly what your mouth is capable of in terms of the instrument that you choose. And my theory is that in Maryland, and this would have been in the 60s, little girls played the flute, little boys played the clarinet. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the chance of a band director being right on embouchure is pretty pretty slim. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at that point. Um, so, I, so that was my very first negotiation. I said to my mother, if I take clarinet lessons can i quit piano lessons because I, I i i didn't like the piano i didn't like practicing it very much and that took place and i went to a little community music uh center not far from my house and i studied with al clearfield who was the clarinetist in the redskins pep band at that time oh how cool is that <laughs> And he was a wonderful guy. And, and if you took lessons with him, you had to come in on Saturday and take theory class, which that was fantastic that he, that he did that. So, so I was starting to take theory in fourth grade uh, as well as clarinet. And when I was going in the summer before seventh grade, we moved to New Jersey and I didn't, know you know who was going to study clarinet with and my grandmother was an organist and went to an american guild of organists meeting and the philadelphia orchestra woodwind quintet performed and she walked right up to anthony giuliati and said my grandson's moving to princeton in jersey who should he study with and and anthony said roger mckinney and okay. so I began studies with Roger McKinney and studied with him from seventh grade until I went off to college. And I, I spent one year at the Hart School of Music and it, it just wasn't, it wasn't the right place for me. And I, I knew that by, and at Christmas I, I talked, I went home and I talked to McKinney and he said, I want you to go to Giuliati. So he sent me, you know, Giuliati sent me to McKinney and McKinney sent me to Giuliati. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I transferred to Temple University uh, because the very first question Anthony asked me was, do you want to study with me or do you want to go to Curtis? Because I don't have any openings at Curtis for three years. And three years from now, you'll come in and you'll be the best clarinet player we hear, but we'll take some talented 16-year-old. Or you can come to Temple right now. So, uh, so I went. I went to Temple, and it and it worked out actually very well for me. I got I got a lot of playing experience, and uh, and I loved Mr. Giuliati, so that was great. And I and years later, McKinney said to me, "Hey, ask Anthony Giuliati about Al Clearfield sometime." And that, I was really confused. I mean, it was like I studied with him like fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I, and I was talking to Anthony Giuliati, and he said, Al Clearfield, you, he was like his best friend when they were in the Navy band together. Oh, <laughs> and, no way. Wow. And he, uh, years later, in the, the second oboist in the Chicago Symphony, cut out a picture and handed it back to me during a rehearsal and it was Daniel Bonad's class of 1937 at Curtis. And one of the people in it was Al Clearfield. How cool is that? So all of my teachers had studied with Bonad. So, which, which was helpful, not to have people telling you totally different things. My senior year in college, I, I auditioned for the Milwaukee Symphony. They had a bass clarinet opening. I, I had played bass clarinet not very much yet, and I went out and played the audition, and they really liked me, but they said, your bass playing isn't quite as strong as your clarinet playing, and I laughed. Yeah. And, and it was Russ Dagan who I was talking to, who the, the principal clarinet of the Milwaukee Symphony, and he, 
And he looked at me like, you know, bad response. And I said, well, I've only played it for two months. Yeah. <laughs> so um, luckily there was another opening uh, with the Phoenix Symphony for assistant principal and bass. And I, I took that audition and, and I was offered the position. So I started right out of school in, in the Phoenix Symphony. And there I had the good fortune to uh, discover that Keith Stein, the, the great teacher from Michigan State, had retired and was living just south of Phoenix, an hour and a half or so. And so I'd go down and play for him sometimes. And he was just a delightful little old man. And his wife was so sweet. And, they, you know, it was great. <laughs> we had such a good time and I and it was very helpful to me to have to have a little more input from from him after two seasons in Phoenix I I won the position with Lyric Opera of Chicago and, and this was moved. still bass clarinet yes it okay. was it was bass clarinet I think it's fair to say at that point in time I was still sort of fighting the bass clarinet yeah, I think, you know, it's, I mean, you, I know you've spent your entire career trying to kind of suppress that stereotype, but I, I kind of feel the same way. It was like, it just kind of fell to me in a way. And, you know, once you kind of get in it, you start enjoying it a lot and you kind of find your own voice. So it's interesting to hear you say that. You find your own voice and you find the instrument's voice. Yeah. And, and I've, and frankly, I don't mean to demean an orchestra, but the Phoenix Symphony was not the greatest orchestra in the world in those days. Mm -hmm. And I thought, as long as I'm playing at bass, I might as well play it somewhere better. Sure. So I, I moved to Chicago and I played the, the first season with Lyric. And in between, those seasons in those days were only September to December. We had what we for the opera seasons. Yeah, yeah. So we had what we referred to as thirty-seven weeks of unpaid vacation. Okay, but there was there was freelancing in Chicago in those days, and I, so I was getting hired. Uh, if if you live in Chicago and you're with the symphony or the opera, you're fairly visible. So I was getting some work, and then before my second season with Lyric. Vancouver offered me their bass clarinet position and Lyric was not so good about letting people out if it was at a point that it was going to be hard for them to hold an audition and replace you. Okay. So Vancouver said, well, we'll wait. We'll take the runner up and you come when you can. They, they knew our season was over in December. So that's what I did. I played a second season with Lyric Opera, which which was great. You know, I mean, it was that's the, the first time I'd ever heard Placido Domingo, Pavarotti, you know, Rene Fleming. I mean, it, there were just it was just a great position to be in. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I I had a friend once who said that the first time he heard a singer of that level, it scared him just because of like the pure power in the vocals it, like it's 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 head turn like you know when you hear something great like that so that's that's nice Absolutely. that you had that exposure early on and lyric if you were not playing one of the operas you were on call you had to attend dress rehearsal so you had some idea how the opera went and you had to check in every night and we did tales of hoffman and at that point, I have to admit, and it's a little embarrassing, I, I didn't even know who Placido Domingo was yet. Now, this was 1976. Much of the world didn't know who Placido Domingo was yet. But I sat in a dress rehearsal and I listened. And, and you may be aware that, that Placido started his career as a baritone. And then he moved up to tenor. And when you heard him sing, you're like, he sounded like a baritone. But when he got up to like 
really high. I was like, how can a baritone sing that high? I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty and cool. my, my colleagues had to say, yeah, that's Placido Domingo. <laughs> you know. So then with the, with the check-in, I would come down and stand in the wings on stage level to listen to the whole first act of, of Joseph Hoffman, just to hear him and Ruth Welting was singing Olympia in Act One. It was just an amazing learning experience to hear that over and over. Yeah, absolutely, that's great. While I was with the opera company, I, I was able to take a few lessons with Robert Marcellus, who was teaching at Northwestern, of course, at that time, and a couple of coaching sessions with Larry Combs. Larry's wife, Gail Williams, was in the opera company, so I, I had gotten to know them already. Um, so at the end of the, my second season, Lyric, we, we headed off, I, I, I headed off to Vancouver, played like a Christmas Pops concert, and then sat around in the rain, not, not really knowing anybody. Okay. I, I was there for two seasons, enjoyed it very much. It's such a spectacularly beautiful city, and a lot of fantastic young players were all there at the same time. It was, it was fun to be there. And then I was offered the Cincinnati Symphony, which I didn't really, I kind of didn't want to take it. I wanted to, because I loved Vancouver. But it's hard, you know, I think, I think in those days, Vancouver was about a 34-week season, somewhere around there, I don't remember exactly. And of course, Cincinnati was a 52-week orchestra. Yep. So salary-wise, there was no way to compare them. So I... I took the Cincinnati job, and that turned out to actually, it's a terrific orchestra, and, and I made some good friends there. But I had only been there for five weeks when Schulte offered me Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent the whole year in Cincinnati, and it was great. It was the first year that Nan and I had been married. And, and so we had, we had, we both had good jobs, and we had a, we had a great time. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and and I actually played with with Chicago. Uh, Schulte asked me to come up uh, to do Rite of Spring and go to Carnegie Hall and do it. And it just happened to work out with the Cincinnati schedule that they could free me up to do it. So it's a pretty that, good debut for, that, for you. That was a, that was uh, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. I, I was a little freaked, but <laughs> but clearly it uh, worked out okay for you. So well, they didn't get rid of me that week. Yeah, <laughs> and then you've been in Chicago for how long now? Forty years. Forty years exactly. Yep. Wow, very cool. Well, I know we already touched on this, but people always ask me as a clarinet player why I chose to play the bass clarinet, and my answer to them is usually. I didn't, the bass clarinet chose me, which is kind of what happened. And for me, I remember you were my teacher and I didn't touch a bass clarinet until your bass clarinet class when I was a junior in college. And a lot of people don't know that. I, I had never played one before. And I remember I walked into our first bass class. You like handed me a mouthpiece out of, one, out of your stash and you handed me a box of reeds and we just went to work and I remember at the end of that class, it was just me and one other person, and you kind of pulled me aside, and you're like, I think you should start practicing this instrument, <laughs> So, uh, which was clearly good advice. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how you ended up being a bass clarinetist. So you sort of touched on it, but how did it kind of work out for you? You know, I'd always, I'd always been interested in new music, and I, I played in the new music ensemble at Temple University. Uh, oh the whole time I was there. And, you know, you get different assignments depending on what it is. For instance, I played E-flat clarinet for the first time in my life on the Berg Chamber Concerto. <laughs> yeah, welcome to E-flat kind of, clarinet. Yeah, kind of a gigantic E-flat part. And I played bass clarinet for the first time in my life on the Schoenberg Chamber Symphony Opus 9. <laughs> Man, so you had a... a, a premieres in your life were pretty big big time things so right of spring with the chicago symphony the barrack chamber symphony and well man. 
so far it's worked out. Yeah, <laughs> you survived clearly. So you know, I I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Mr. Giliatti said, "Well, go take a couple of lessons with Ron Rubin, the bass clarinetist of Philly." And I I can't even remember if I did right away or I waited until I actually had that audition coming up. But uh, you know, Ron Ronnie. I think I took, I remember taking a readout and putting it on and playing like literally three notes. And he said, is that a tenor sax read? That was, he knew right away, huh? I, I didn't even know it. It was in the case. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, uh, he got me uh, switched, switched off that in a hurry. And, you know, I, I just seemed, things seemed easy on the bass for me. Sure, and and I I did skip over the part that I that I had always sung a lot, uh, you know, with my mom being a singer, I, I sang in church choirs, and then seventh through ninth grade in New Jersey, I went to the Columbus Boy Choir School, where we were in rehearsal, singing three hours a day at theory class all the time, as one of our regular classes and toured all over, all over the world, really. So clarinetists love to say, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm trying to sound like a voice. I, I actually sang for, for years. I had sung much more than I'd ever played the clarinet. And one of the people that, you know, my mom is as the soprano, in an opera, would get the rest of the. There's usually a, a solo quartet or quintet that are the that are the leads, and she would get them over to our house to rehearse stuff sometimes. And and the, one of the bass baritones and I, be, you know, I really liked him a lot. I thought he was a neat guy, and I and I think I've always had that sound kind of in my head, and and bass made it possible to do that and not just be a soprano. So that was kind of a, a neat discovery for me. Yeah, it's really interesting. I always, and this obviously isn't about me, it's about you, but for me, the bass clarinet, like I always think I'm a good clarinet player, but I feel like I can get closer to what I imagine something sounding like at using the bass clarinet as my vehicle. Like, I feel like I just, there's something natural about it to me that I don't get with clarinet. And I don't know why that is, but it's just kind of the relationship that I have with the instrument. That, that's an interesting comment. I can, I, I don't know why, why that is, but I feel that way a lot too. And I, and maybe it's just that both of us have an affinity for the instrument, which lots of, very, very good clarinet players don't happen to have. Yeah, and I think, too, there's something about being a part of the, especially in the orchestra, there's something about being, adding to the whole in a way, and if you have, I mean, you can stick a lot of people in an orchestra and have them play a bass clarinet, but if you stick you in an orchestra, it changes the sound fundamentally of the orchestra because there's another voice in there and another color. And to me, that was always really powerful is like being able to play with the trombone section or the bassoons and shaping the way that the orchestra fundamentally sounds. And I always just love that about the instrument. Well, you know, that's a lovely comment. And that's, that's always been my goal is, is not to take over, but to, but to add it all, all the corners, as we re refer to it, the, the piccolo, English horn, contra, and, and bass, we're all color instruments. And if we're not adding color, why are we there? Yeah, exactly. So cool. Um, one thing I want to know is what were some of your favorite and or most memorable performances of your career with the Chicago Symphony? I mean, you had 40 years. You've probably played Heldenleben over a hundred times, you know, all these pieces you've played so many times, but what, what made performances for you memorable, whether it was just during your season or on tour, or there was something just magical about a certain night that you remember? You know, I think it's, it's when 
the conductor and the orchestra gel in such a way that, that you just know nothing can go wrong. That seems simplistic and that that must happen all the time, but you and I both know it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and the, the thing I, that I have loved about being in my orchestra is we can play really, really well when that isn't happening. But what we can do when it is happening is frightening. Right. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I mean, the very first one that pops into my head was that Rite of Spring with Schulte because I'd played Rite of Spring, but I'd never had an experience like that. Uh, Schulte did not try to pretty up Rite of Spring. Some conductors do, and, and Stravinsky didn't, didn't really want it prettied up. And yeah. it, it was raw and angry and, and fantastic. You know, I think of, uh, we did a, a Mahler one with Klaus Tenstedt. And Tenstedt was, was, was great. He's an odd little guy, or not so little, he's a big taller. But he took, you know, I think Mahler one, we all play. I, I think at one time I played Mahler one every season and every year at Ravinia for like 10 years in a row. It's like, come on, guys, there are other symphonies. <laughs> There's nine of them, yeah. <laughs> but but Tenstedt took more risk with that than anybody else I'd played it with. And to me, what makes that symphony interesting is when you really pre push the boundaries. And and it was, it was great. Carlos Kleiber only got to play for him once. It, it was unbelievably magical. He did Brahms too with us. We're an orchestra that doesn't like conductors to tell stories. And he said, and he said to us at one point, it's like an old man walking through a field, holding the hand of a little girl. And we were all like, yep, yep, we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, Abato, of course, was principal guest when I first joined. His Tchaikovsky was spectacular. You know, you could play Tchaikovsky five, and you think, oh, it's a war horse. And it, there, it was so perfect. It, it to us, it was perfect. I mean, there was, just, and you could play it. We did it on tour over and over and over, and every night we were like, yep, that was the way it goes. Bar Barenboim did the complete Tristan with us. It, it was fantastic. You know, I'd, I'd never played the complete. I played the big act two, which has the huge bass clarinet part. Uh, but to do the whole thing was really, was really an experience. And working with Heitink, uh, Bernard Heitink was just such an elegant gentleman you know, generous and kind and, and a small beat, which, which, you know, this orchestra had played years for Reiner and, and nobody had ever stopped liking that little, the smaller the beat, the better. And, and I think was great at that. And, and of course, Boulez, Boulez, you always learn something. Didn't matter whether it was conduct, conducting brand new things or he'd do a Mahler symphony. And some people complained that emotionally it wasn't you know, the same as Bernstein, say, but you always learn something. You know, you heard things you'd never heard before because he got it balanced so perfectly. All, every conductor I've mentioned the through line is that is this orchestra had so much respect for those people that you know we came with our game faces on to the first rehearsal everybody was you know excited to work and and so it was a two-way street you know we had somebody that we we thought was worth really paying attention and and they were working hard and that worked yeah. 
That's amazing. Just to hear you go and list off all these names. I mean, what a, what a cool, I mean, I know all these people mainly through recordings or reading about them or hearing about them from past generations, but I mean, you've, you've seen them all and you've played for them all. And, uh, that's a pretty cool thing to take away. We've been very fortunate. You know, I got to play Shostakovich seven for Bernstein. Yeah, I, I, it was it was great. I got myself very familiar with that recording because actually my trial week for Indianapolis was Shostakovich seven, and I listened to that recording every day, probably three three times a day, just to make sure that I knew it back to front. And uh, I, I actually was so I was so excited to we to play it one last time, and and that w- would have been the second week after the. We got canceled out this year. Yeah. It's, so, well, maybe you can come out of retirement and, and play. <laughs> um, so, I know that you've been a true champion of the bass clarinet throughout your career. And this past February, you played a new commission by Nicholas Bakri entitled Ophelia's Tears for Bass Clarinet and Orchestra. And this was commissioned for you by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and music director Ricardo Muti. So can you talk about this experience and how it compared to your other times playing concerto with the orchestra? And I have to apologize to you as well because I wasn't able to make this performance, unfortunately, because <laughs> I was I was playing with the Detroit Symphony that week. And I know, that was great. Unfo- yeah, but unfortunately, I mean, I would have... I'm hoping I can get a recording at some point in time, but um, man, that must have been such a cool, cool thing for you. You know, it was... I mean, it was such an honor because I, I had been contemplating retirement and, and then talked to Muti because I know him. I've gotten to know him quite well. And and he didn't, and he said, no, I don't want you to retire. I'll, I'll commission a concerto for you. Yeah. So for our listeners out there, literally nobody else could make that happen. Like nobody else would do that for anybody else. So uh for those thinking thinking about retiring, don't expect to go into the music director's office <laughs> and him say, "No, don't retire. I'm going to commission a concerto for you just to make sure you don't retire." It was an honor, uh, and I, yeah. I I went home that day and I told my wife what had happened. I said, "I don't think I can turn this down," you know, that, because I've I've tried to build respect for the bass clarinet my whole career, and just what you said. I've now been offered something that no one else will ever be offered again. Yeah. And, that is pretty you know, cool. For Ricardo Muti to do this, I want to do it. She, she was in agreement. <laughs> yeah. So what took place next was the artistic uh, staff member, Christina Rocca and I started to go through and collect some scores of composers that we would present to Maestro Muti for his, you know, his choice. I immediately had put Nicholas Bakri in. Uh, I had played his chamber music uh, several times, several different pieces. And between Christina and I, we came up with, I think, uh, five composers, and we gave him several scores from each composer. You, you know, what do you think? And one of the composers Christina had thrown in was an American composer that I had never heard of, and I listened to a bunch of his music, and I didn't understand at all what she liked about it i'm not i'm not going to name this person but i i didn't really want that and muti came back he said well i like these two and it was this this american one and nicholas bakri and i said great we'll do bakri yeah (laughs) because i mean he he said either one you you choose and so Nicholas and I began an, an electronic conversation. Uh, he lives in, in Brussels, teaches in Paris. Uh, but I would email him and, and talk about what I, what I didn't like in certain 
contemporary writing for the bass clarinet, uh, what I thought composers were ignoring about the bass clarinet. And ultimately, uh, I flew to Paris. There was, there was a week that the, that the orchestra didn't need me, so I flew to Paris and met him. And Nicholas had sent me a, a solo clarinet piece called Ophelia and said, you know, maybe learn this piece. And I, so I play, he wrote it for a, a Japanese clarinet player. It, it actually was condensed from a piece for soprano and clarinet called Ophelia's Madness. And I played it for him on bass clarinet. And, and he was like, <laughs> He was like, I didn't know you could do it on bass clarinet. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I played him things like Act Two of Tristan and, and all kinds of Wagner things and, and said, why is it that no one has really written melodically for the bass clarinet since 1870? Mm. And it was interesting because he had, he had been to ICA had been in, in Belgium that year, and he had gone, knowing he had this commission, and listened to a lot of bass clarinet players and, and said, he, told, he only told me this later, that he didn't think the bass clarinet could really act as the protagonist in a, <laughs> in a solo situation. So I had played all kind of orchestral excerpts, all kinds of things for him, and we talked, went out for a drink, and... And a couple of weeks later, he started sending me pencil sketches and said, this, this concerto is just like flowing like a river in front of my eyes. And That's pretty cool. Yeah. And he would say, you know, sometimes he'd send me just a phrase and say, can you play this? And it was a very soft, very melodic passage, really high up. And so I'd go in my practice room and try things and say, yeah, I can play that. And it was like, you know, if you need something changed, let me know. And I, I always looked at it, if I couldn't do it, I looked at it as my limitation and just worked harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I never actually asked him for, the only things I asked him, like, I think I need, you have me at a, at a piano dynamic, I'm going to need to be louder there or, I need a breath here, not over here. And and he was always like, yeah, that's fine. The piece I, I got in its complete version, I think in around April of, of 19, which is sort of amazing since I met him in February of 19. <laughs> mm, yeah, pretty fast. Yeah, it was, it was sometime between April and May, maybe. And Muti had said that he needed to have the score by August because he has score study time in August. So by then we knew that it was, it was done and there would not be changes. One of the more amazing things, Maestro Mutti can be very hard on composers, live composers. He, he had many, many years training as a composer himself and was, you know, was, loves to talk about He's a great counterpoint student. And he will often really light into composers when they're with us. And he brought Nicholas up on stage and introduced him to the orchestra and said, this is Nicholas Bakri. He's written us a very good piece. Oh, man. Nailed it, huh? I think it's fair to say, and I've... I, Obviously, I've not heard everything out there, but I've played an awful lot. It's the best thing written for bass, clarinet, and orchestra as up to now. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, it's a really good piece. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I look forward to hearing it at some point. And, uh, you know, it's just listening to that story and, and how he composed it for you and how you kind of, you kind of bounce things off of each other makes me want to, you know, maybe send an email to some artistic administration, see if maybe we can get it programmed at some point in time. That'd be, that'd you know, be I, I had started this, the conversation with Christina Roca by saying, I don't want some composer I don't know and don't care about. I said, 
at the end of, of another player's career, they commissioned a concerto for him, and they never asked who they might like. The composer and the player were never put together at any time. And the day after the premiere, I was having lunch with this player and somebody else came in and said, how did it go last night? I, I didn't get to hear it. Do you like the piece? And they looked kind of off in the ceiling and said, no. And I told her that story and I said, I don't want that experience. I think it's wonderful that you guys want to commission a piece for me, but I want to love this piece. Yeah. So, so that was planned. Well, good. I'm I'm glad that you got that experience, and and it, I guess it was probably one of the last concerts of your CSO career. I would imagine it. It turned out it was. Oh, it was the very last one. Yeah, it wasn't supposed to be. I uh -huh. I I was rotated out. Uh, just not needed for the next two weeks. But I came back the week after and played all the rehearsals. And between the rehearsal and the concert was when we, they sent us an email and said, don't come back tonight. It's, we're done for a while. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you certainly went off how you deserve to go off. So that, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that that's pretty cool. So I wanted to talk about, to you about your chamber music. And I know that this has always been something that you're extremely passionate about. And I think, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think it's one of your favorite mediums for, for making music. So can you talk about your different chamber ensembles, your one in Chicago, and of course your festival, and just how you were able to weave that into your other obligations? Sure. I mean, I grew up playing chamber music. Like the assistant director at the boy choir school was a very good pianist, and I would play, and he had a friend that was a good cellist, and we would play through the Beethoven trio and the Brahms trio and things, and I was, you know, 13. I had a very active woodwind quintet when I was an undergraduate. I mean, we were assigned to, to chamber music, and we really liked each other and got along, so... At the end of the semester, we just kept going and we got ourselves concerts and stuff. So chamber music has always been incredibly important to me. It's a very different thing than being in the orchestra. In a woodwind position like you and I have, you're always, you're always responsible for a part that can be very soloistic at times. But you will have the conductor there and they have their opinion, as they should. That's, that's why you hired them. I, I think I, at one point I actually had said to Giuliatti, I just want to play chamber music, and he was like, you play clarinet, you play clarinet in an orchestra. And I was, you know, 19, and I went, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I have no complaint. I mean, the balance has, has been... Uh, fortunate that you know because there there are negatives to a career in chamber music you're never home mm, you, know, yeah. you gotta be on the road all the time if you want to make any money but chamber music has an intimacy not only as a player but with in terms of communication with the audience it's hard to feel that communication from an orchestra stage there's so many of you it's a, it's like there's a little bit of a, a barrier that you don't feel when you're on stage and there's four or five of you and there's, you know, anywhere from 50 to 500 people. I mean, it's, there, it's a much more direct thing. And you hear this from the audience all the time that, you know, oh my God, you know, to just not only to listen, but to watch how you guys work together. That's always been important to me. And, and there's so much chamber music for the clarinet. We, we kind of lucked out in that regard, I would say. We did, but you had to search, you know, because when, when you first start, I mean, when I was in high school, I was like, geez, we got, you know, like two, two Brahms chamber music pieces and one by Mozart. And, 
Is that it? <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, you look at that compared to a string quartet who, who could play Haydn for the rest of their lives and never run out of music. Mm. <laughs> so, but, but I've always been curious and part of where my curiosity leads to me has always led me is what else is there for clarinet? You know, what else, what else can I do? And I, I played mostly in Chicago in a lot of pickup groups for a long time. And it wasn't until, well, I guess it's getting, it's getting on 20 years ago now, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, that I played with the Rembrandt chamber players. Uh, and I, I, I played with them for a while as a guest, and then they asked me to become a member. And then uh, four of us, three of us from the orchestra and a wonderful pianist here in Chicago formed the Civitas Ensemble. Yeah. And we're going into our 10th year with that now. And that's, that's the instrumentation of Quartet for the End of Time. And you find that there's a lot, there's a lot written for that. Uh, we don't limit ourselves to doing that. We add players. We we play trios. We do whatever seems interesting to us. And one of the things that was important to us, uh, the violinist's son had had cancer and I had had cancer. Um, so we, right from the beginning, started playing at the Children's Hospital in Chicago. Well, that's great. Uh, I, didn't know, no, I didn't know about that. So that's, that's yeah, and that's great. been part of our mission right from the beginning to play in places that it's harder for them to hear music. So we, we go into senior citizen facilities and hospitals and stuff. So that's been, been very rewarding. And also 35 years ago, uh, one of my oldest friends and the woman that introduced my wife and I to each other uh, formed the Chesapeake Music Festival it's, it's had two other names, but it's now the Chesapeake Music Festival. Mm-hmm. And Marcy is a, is a fantastic cellist, was a founding member of the Mendelssohn String Quartet, a fantastic string quartet. And she's, you know, a mainstay of Marlborough and more than 20 tours with Marlborough. She's a just unbelievable cellist. And... We uh, we formed this this little festival, which started as two concerts, one public and one a fundraiser to try and have a second year. And basically, we had two rules: we got to like this person enough to want them around for a week, and they got to play great. Mm. And that has worked. Everybody that comes. A lot of a lot of New York players that are because Marcy lived in New York for uh, decades, and uh, half of them are in residence at Lincoln Center. We've had three or four who've won the Avery Fisher Career Award. It's a pretty humbling list. It's, I'm going to play with them. Yeah. All right. <laughs> But it's been fantastic, and it and it's been such fun to have control over programming, which does make you realize how hard that job is. Yeah, you know, you're looking at an orchestra's full season, and I I was only scheduling a two week chamber music festival. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's no and, joke, that's for sure. It's an enormous undertaking, and soloists, and all you know. It's and it's a huge jigsaw puzzle. So you gain a little respect for those that are doing that. Well, cool. I'm glad that we were able to kind of talk through all that stuff. I know you. That's like I said before. That's that's a passion of yours, and I love that you were able to take part of what you do there and make it more accessible to people who maybe don't have exposure to that in addition to doing what you love to do. So that's a, that's a really cool and powerful thing. Um, so as I mentioned in your introduction, teaching has been a huge part of your life and you have had a big effect, certainly in my success and success of many others. 
So what does it mean to you when you see the success of your students or you hear them perform in their orchestras throughout the country? Or like, for those who don't know, we had a concert at one of the ICA conventions a couple of years ago, I guess it was 2016, where there was eight of us or nine of us that came together and we put on a little clarinet, bass clarinet concert. And it was just really cool for all of us to get to play with you and play with each other and we all see each other around the country and it's, it's kind of a, a fraternity of sorts, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, so what is, what are your thoughts on that? I love to teach. I've, I started teaching when I was 14. I had my first clarinet student and to feel that you've been able to help someone along that path it is incredibly rewarding. I, I remember that concert in, in Lawrence very well, particularly the Eric Mandat that I didn't play, that you guys played, and I went out front. And, and for our listeners, uh, Shadows of the, from the Flames has five movements with a clarinet soloist with four bass clarinets in the accompaniment. And I said to you guys, I want a different one to solo on each movement. And then you go back into the ensemble to, to play bass because that's what I've tried to show people my whole life that we do. I hope that it's been easier for, for you guys, but being a bass clarinetist when I started out was an insult. Mm. That meant you weren't really very good. So give him a bass. And, <laughs> you know, I, when I'd go to ICA, I always played, in those days, they'd give you a whole recital. Well, I'd play clarinet and bass clarinet. Just to show, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I wanted you guys to do that. And it was so unbelievably impressive listening to that. And I remember saying to the audience and afterwards, that's why I love teaching at Northwestern so much. Not only are these kids good, but they're so smart. How could, you know, you, you couldn't just pick five or six clarinetists and ask them to do that and put it together <laughs> in a day. Yeah, it was like... 45 minutes I think we had on that piece something like that it wasn't very much time yeah and Eric Mandat loved it because he's, he said it made more clear than ever before the individual character of each movement that by having a, a different person play the solo it's such an honor to, to have worked with you guys and to you know, see what you're all doing, you know, and not, not everybody ends up playing the clarinet in a big orchestra. You guys are the lucky ones in some ways, but, but I know classmates of yours that are doing other things that are doing just great. I mean, that's, yeah, absolutely. that's the beauty of Northwestern to me that you guys have a lot going for you. And if it, ends up being the clarinet wonderful and if it's something else you're going to do that just fine too yeah absolutely i mean a lot of the people in my class who i was good friends with i mean they were killers on the clarinet absolute killers they were certainly better than i was at that time but now they're just killing it in something else and i'm still playing clarinet they're doing great with some of them are doctors some of them work in tech companies and everyone's just I think very well-rounded and and it speaks to the fact that you can use music as a vehicle for success in a lot of different fields. Absolutely. And I, I do have to mention that, that one of my career highlights up to this point was when I got to play next to you in Chicago, we were doing John Adams harmony layer. And it was just so cool for me to see you and, ex and, and experience you in your environment and like be a part of it. And it was just like a really cool full circle moment for me. So I just wanted to thank you for, for that opportunity. And well, thank you for, for playing with us. I was, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to be able to bring in 
former students, uh, and and it's a and it's wonderful. You know, I've done that for years. I, I taught at DePaul for ten years before I started teaching at Northwestern. Uh, a DePaul student that would come in and play Rite of Spring with us, and uh, numerous people from the Northwestern studio over the years have have been able to come in either play with me or or replace me when i was out either sick or or on vacation whatever yeah so you know it's it i i hope greatly and i'm and i make no bones about this i i hope that one of my students takes my place i have no i have no say in it yeah, I, uh, I think we're we're all hoping for the same thing. <laughs> well, well, we're all hoping that it's it's ourselves, but um, of course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk to you about your life off the stage. And I just wanted to know, like, you've always been a very fit person. Like, you've always been really into physical fitness and led a very active lifestyle when you came to our lessons you would have your bike with you and your helmet because you would bike from your house to the music building and so i just wanted to know like what what is your favorite way to exercise and how do you use that to sort of balance out the physicality of of playing music well i think as a wind player it's it's really important to be in shape i mean we we make our living blowing air and it takes a lot of effort. So I started running back in, I think it was about 1976 or seven, I started taking up jogging. And I, I, I love that because it, it's kind of meditative for me. I can, I don't have to, other than trying not to trip, which I do occasionally, <laughs> uh, you're mostly, you know, able to think of, whatever and just run my dad was a very good tennis player and started me playing tennis at, at about nine years old i i mean and he got me good lessons and by the time i was 14 i was started beating him <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh i've always i've always played tennis i love i love you know whenever i'm not on a court for a while when i get out it's just like so joyful to to yeah. be out there again and of course, my whole family is is quite athletic, and we hike a lot. And my kids were very involved in sports, organized sports, and I I just love the balance and the calmness it brings to me. Yeah, would you say this is sort of piggybacking off the last question? But would you say that you used physical fitness as your main sort of balance with? your music career? Cause I know it's so easy to just go all in on music all the time, practicing, preparing, going to rehearsals, going to concerts, but I feel like you need to have some sort of outlet that's not music. And for you, I feel like it's, it's outdoors. It's being with your dogs. It's playing tennis. It's exercising. Well, it's family first. <laughs> and sure. Since, yeah. Since my I family, that. since my family were also outdoorsy, my wife and I were adamant that bringing up kids in an urban situation that we get them to appreciate mountains and hiking and you know one of our great joys is to see them taking their friends and now partners camping yeah uh, cuz not everybody who grew up in Chicago goes camping <laughs> that's for sure and we had to we had to put a lot of effort into making that a part of their life but it was important to us that we give them that and you know it's why we're moving to oregon because i can see seven mountains from the deck of the house i'm gonna live in man so. that's amazing so so what are your plans for retirement have, have you already started i guess you you bought a house and you're planning on moving to oregon do you have any like side hustles you're gonna do or are you gonna volunteer mainly just enjoy the outdoors enjoy your kids 
we're we're going to become grandparents in August, so that's oh, congratulations! That, that will be a, a highlight for us. Absolutely, we, we hope by August we'll be able to go see and hold the baby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with, with what's going on in the world, that's up in the air right now. We're going mainly for the outdoor experience in that particular place, which is very special. I have always done a lot of woodworking. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's been more of the construction type, like you know, I've rebuilt things in the house and stuff. And I just took a class this year. Uh, it was one of the things I have to say that not teaching at Northwestern afforded me the time to take a class in furniture building. For those who don't know, Laurie retired from teaching a year before he retired from the orchestra. Yeah. That was a hard decision, but you know, I took advantage of it, as I said, and could take could take this class. And I see doing that. Nan has been asking me for a long time, what part does the clarinet hold in retirement? I still can't answer. I don't. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because, I mean, I always imagine when I retire that I'll just close the case, but. I don't know if that's true because it's just been such a big part of my life. So I just that's the that's the thing. I mean, I've been playing the clarinet since I was nine years old. It's really hard to imagine not having it. I mean, I'm not moving without clarinets while I am selling off lots. And if you have listeners who are looking for a Tosca bass, they should call me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I'll see. You know, there there may be an avenue that I look at and say, well, that that would be fun. But I also heard two very famous clarinetists who shall remain nameless play programs when when they were each sixty nine years old, and I thought, wow, they really maybe should have stopped playing publicly. And and they were both much better players than I ever was. Okay. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I think the idea that you that you must play forever is a a movie myth, kind of you know how people like to think of musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I if I want to play, I'll play. But that's kind of cool that you're going to have this luxury of like, if you want to play, you'll play. Not okay. I got a nose to the grindstone, Tchaikovsky Five for the two hundredth time. Right. It's nice to have that option. Right. Yeah, it is. There's no question. And you know, the the other thing is you you will find out decades from now we've we've done something for a really long time, me much longer than you, at a very high level. Do you want to do it at a lower level or do you want to do something else? Cuz there's a lot of things to do in the world. Cuz I mean, you you know as well as I do, the only way to do what we do is to be a little obsessive. You, you give up things because of your dedication to that. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you may say, okay, I've given up enough of the other, and I'm going to choose a different thing. And that's okay. I, yeah, I get tired of people saying, well, you have to play. It's like, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's a perfectly valid question. Well, Laura, I really, you know, I've already expressed to you how much your influence on me has meant to me. And it's been really fun to just get to sit down and chat with you and learn more about your life and your career and your plans and your background. I mean, I learned a ton of stuff that I don't, I didn't know. And I've known you for 13 years now, I think. So it's, it's re- it was really great, and I, I think people learned a lot. Next time I get to interview you. Yeah, that's right. I think <laughs> one of these episodes, I'm going to have to turn the tides and have right. somebody interview me. I don't have as much glorious things to talk about as you do, but so maybe... Uh, but maybe there's probably a, a lot we don't know. I'm sure there is. Um, so anyway, do you have any last words or shout-outs or lasting pieces of advice or words of wisdom that you want to say before we wrap it up you know i i've in looking at retirement and of course having 
taught so much and still doing things like Buffet Academy. And I've thought a lot about, you know, what, what does it take to succeed in this business? I mean, yeah, you have to be talented. You've got to be curious. And I think, you know, people should be curious. And I, and I also, I love what you're doing here because I think we didn't have the same technical opportunities that, that your generation has. And I, that's not a complaint. It's just, that's the way it was. But I think that there's so much talent in every orchestra I know of that's underutilized. You know, it's, a, it's like, you feel sometimes like managements are saying, just shut up and play the clarinet. And there's so much available from that collective group. And I'm assuming you're thinking more than just talent in terms of musical talent, like like you were saying, curiosities. Absolutely. getting Get involved. Our, our union likes to, has done so much for us all, but they like us to stay out of, like, oh, don't ever be on a board committee and don't do this and do that. It's like, okay, maybe you don't need to worry about making the money, but get creatively involved. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us today. And for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at The Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to The Candid Clarinetist.